do this. Thank you, Jared. I'm, my name is uh, James Brown. I'm the creative arts director here at Crosspoint, or song and dance man, if you prefer. It's a technical title for what I do here. It's not very often that I'm up here preaching, usually singing and playing guitar. I tell you this in case this is your first time and things go horribly wrong, and maybe you consider giving it a second chance. <clears throat> that being said, if this is your first time, or if you've been here for the past couple months but haven't been paying attention at all, then at this point, it's not going to matter, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. We're nearing the end of a sermon series entitled Cruciform, which simply means having the shape of a cross. Each week, we've examined a different facet of the cross and what Jesus accomplished by his crucifixion, as well as what that means for us. Jamie has talked about this stained glass graphic behind me. Depending on the time of day or where you're standing, the way that stained glass refracts light changes, accents a color in a different way. Every facet we've looked at thus far uniquely illuminates the cross. And presented all together, they form a beautiful and complex tapestry, a truly transformative work of art. Today we examine how the cross has secured our victory. In many ways, victory can be viewed as a culmination of all the facets we've looked at thus far. Donald McLeod, in his book, Christ Crucified, talks about it this way, how each facet of the cross relates to one another. He says, the motifs of conquest and victory are not alternatives to expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, satisfaction, and redemption. None of these can stand alone, and none can claim dominance over the others. The cross secures its victory precisely because it expiates sin, propitiates God, and ransoms the sinner. Stripped of these priestly effects, it can have no kingly effects. Nor as a victory and a conquest is it, separate, is it a separate action from his dying. It was the very death that atoned for sin that destroyed the devil. Throughout the series, we've discussed the specific imagery associated with its various facets and doctrines of the cross we've looked at. For redemption, we looked at the Exodus story, a, a people set free, broken chains, the captives going away. And, and we also looked at the book of Hosea, uh, where Gomer, an adulterous woman on the auction block, naked and disgraced, is purchased back by her husband in a lopsided exchange. Likewise, Jesus rescued us from the auction block, paid the penalty that we deserved as unfaithful and wayward sinners, and purchased us by his blood. We looked at expiation and the pictures of the scapegoat sent away to run free in the wilderness on the Day of Atonement, symbolic of our sin being taken away from us, wiped white as snow. We looked at the courtroom imagery of justification, us being made righteous, being declared not guilty on account of Christ's perfect record, not of anything we did. And last week we looked at the already poetic language of illumination being brought out of darkness into his marvelous light, as we saw in the story where Jesus miraculously heals the blind beggar. And the next week we'll look at this idea of being brought into a family of God, and we look at the, the doctrine of adoption. But for this week, as we look at victory and what it means to be victorious in Christ Jesus, we see consistent themes of war, of violence, of this epic battle between good and evil, Christ versus Satan, sin and death, and not to give it away, but Jesus wins. In fact, God himself gives away the ending in the very beginning. This is like every now and again, I'll find myself watching some made-for-TV mystery. Not very often, but often enough to say it's a thing. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and like in the first scene, they reveal who the killer is. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like uh, there are a few episodes of Murder, She Wrote, where this happened. And it's not like this was done for any great effect because it can, in the hands of a, a capable storyteller, make for some compelling drama when you know, the audience is aware, but the protagonist is not. And like they find themselves in some creepy basement, like in Zodiac, and we're like, get out of there. And they like 
can't hear us because it's a show. And, uh, but the kind of mysteries I'm referring to, however, all, have, all they have going for them is this, this big reveal. And once they blow that, there's really no reason to keep watching unless you're like me and you do because you love Angela Lansbury. <laughs> That's going to be up there for a while. Hopefully it's not too distracting as I proceed through the rest of this. So I need you guys to pay attention. But essentially, this is what God does in Genesis 3.15. He tells us the ending. And you know, it's his story, and who am I to say anything about it? It's also real life, and it's probably helpful for Adam and Eve to know, as it's helpful for us to know. We're asking, is this going to end? Are things going to get better? And that sort of thing. And so he tells us right here, Genesis 3.15, so we're going to kick things off this morning. It's also where I should tell you to go ahead and open up your Bible if you have one. And if you don't have one, there should be or likely is one in the seat in front of you. Also, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that one home with you when you leave as a gift from us. We're going to start at the beginning and when we get to the end. We're going to stop. It may be an unconventional approach to some of you, but it's how we like to do things here. Here it goes. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've likely heard this passage before. It being a pivotal moment in human history where one decision made by one couple changed everything and had disastrous consequences for all of mankind. It never hurts to set it up. The story goes, Adam and Eve were created by God and for God to dwell with him and walk with him in this lush garden paradise, and everything was perfect. They were provided everything they could ever want or ever need with one stipulation. God said in Genesis 2.16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the bad news is Adam and Eve disobey God, tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent who tells them that eating of the tree will make them like God. They believe in the lie. And they taste the fruit. Sin and death enter the picture, both physically and spiritually, and hence the mess that we've all inherited. So this is where Genesis 3.15 comes in. I'll read it again. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Essentially, God's people will be at war with the forces of darkness, Satan, sin, and death, a formidable foe of which we would stand no chance, but praise be to God that Satan does not have the final word on the matter. God does. He continues, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So essentially there will be this battle and the battle will be bloody, crucifixion bloody, but the blow will not be fatal. In fact, Christ's death has the opposite effect in sealing Satan's defeat. And here we have the first declaration of victory over Satan and the victor, the offspring of Eve, the son of man, Jesus Christ. He's the one, the conquering hero, the savior who will come and rescue and restore everything. Again, there is no surprise ending in God's story. He tells us a conclusion in the introduction. And we just had the first assault, and God says, you lost. Nice try. And this would be like, like the central powers declaring victory over the allies after the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, which I know is what you guys were all thinking <laughs> as you were sitting there. Any World War I fans in the house? Just, uh, my yes, my favorite war. War to end all wars, right? This is the first instance of God claiming his ultimate victory through his son, but it's certainly not his last. We see this thread interwoven throughout scripture, reminders for his people as the battle rages on. And just to clarify something, because I think it's important that we know our enemy, Satan and his minions are certainly powerful and cunning, 
and not to be underestimated. I like McLeod's detailed description here. He writes, these demonic forces are superhuman, personal, intelligent forces led by a great mastermind, implacable in hatred, I like that word, unwearying in scheming and terrifying in ferocity. Wherever there is evil, it is his work. Wherever there is good, it provokes him to fury. Sometimes he is violent as a lion, sometimes wily as the serpent, and sometimes as plausible as the angel of light. But though he and his demons are infinitely adaptable, his strategy remains ever the same. Victory over the maker, whatever the cost, the destruction of the church, however long it takes, the establishment of hell on earth. That being said, when we talk about good versus evil, these aren't equally matched things like a yin and yang in this instance. Satan is nowhere near God's equal. I couldn't even come up with an analogy to describe how lopsided that matchup is. So I'll use God's words instead. I'm going to spout off these verses rapid fire. Uh, it's like a deafening salvo, like a blitzkrieg to the enemy's stronghold. Where my World War II fans at? Blitzkrieg? No? Everyone on the count of three, say your favorite war. One, two... <laughs> Just kidding. This is why I stick to my notes, otherwise I get distracted. Um, In the Old and New Testament, the Lord reaffirms the promise of victory over Satan and the forces of evil. Here he goes. This is the Blitzkrieg. He says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, Exodus 12, 12. Psalm 2 tells of the coming king, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Psalm 72.4 says, he will crush the oppressor. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, he unapologetically declares himself as the fulfillment of God's promise to mankind in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the perfect Adam, who will crush the head of the serpent. John 12.31-32, Jesus himself says, now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. To Peter, he says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then ultimately we have the fulfillment of this promise at Calvary. Jesus is nailed to the cross and what must have appeared to have been the end to his disciples and his family. All seem lost, the savior of the world eclipsed by darkness. Satan and his army relishing the moment, watching and squirming with delight at the anguish and torture exploding with anticipation, just waiting for the moment when he could shout, I win, and crown himself ruler over this wretched creation. But I love the the switch here, just as his wicked mouth is pursed and the words are about to leave his lips. In a great reversal of fate, one more epic than the reversal of King Xerxes' decree to exterminate the Jews in the book of Esther, if you were with us through that, because this was for all mankind, all our past, present, and future sins, paid in full by the spotless Lamb of God, as Christ shouted, it is finished. And simultaneously, Satan was finished. With his plan to destroy the Son of God, he destroys himself. Colossians two thirteen through 15 says it this way, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then one of my favorites, Hebrews two fourteen through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's good news, amen? And we don't have to be afraid. You hear that? I'm not afraid anymore. It's a quote from Home Alone. Kevin Callister says it to the furnace in the basement. (laughs) The once paralyzing fear of death that kept humanity in bondage and made men go crazy trying to prove themselves, we no longer have to live under that. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, another one of my favorites, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death still exists, but it no longer carries the same weight. We die a physical death in this life, but if we are in Christ, our soul rests eternally with him. Consequently, Satan has been permanently disarmed. And as Christians, we look forward to the day when Satan is eternally bound, as depicted in the last chapters of Revelation thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented forever and ever. But that's not the best part. All God's people at that point can dwell with him in the kingdom of light, never to be tempted nor tormented, nor discouraged, nor distracted ever again, in eternal peace and love and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Happily ever after, but for reals this time, right? All the fairy tales we've grown up on seem to point to a day where the dragon is well and truly vanquished. I think this is a good place to transition. Throughout this series, we've been exploring each facet of the cross through this framework you see behind you. Doctrinally, which we just did, we saw what God's word has to say about his victory over Satan, sin, and death. Personally, how it applies to us communally and missionally, which Spellcheck doesn't accept as a real adverb. So I'm going to attempt to keep this same structure here. There's probably some overlap between the categories and how these things get applied, but I think that's okay. I think it's helpful breaking it down in this way. So I'll proceed in order, starting with the personal implications of this doctrine. And I, I wanted to say I felt, felt compelled to go this direction by some combination of my own experience and uh, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you might say. Although the commentaries I read briefly addressed what I'm about to go after, so this is somewhat uncomfortable territory. You guys intrigued? I have this way of explaining everything without explaining the thing I'm actually talking about. It's a rare talent of mine. I think it drives my wife crazy. (laughs) What is it? What's he talking about? I'm going to tell you guys right now, so hold your horses. This is it, personally. Ding. So reading those verses on victories I just did, I felt this real sense of triumph and momentum, and maybe you guys felt the same way. Like I could cruise control to the finish line singing, death where is your victory, death where is your sting, and make no mistake about about it, that that is good news. In fact, there's never been better news. But if you're like me, you wrestle in this in-between place, what I've often heard referred to as the already but not yet. Maybe some of you are asking the question, if the war is won, why do I feel like I'm losing the battle? And maybe in the season, victory in the everyday seems elusive for you. Maybe some of you are on the verge of giving up, or maybe some of you have given up. You don't want to fight anymore, because this is a hard life, and it's long, and the heart is deceitful above all things, and Satan is crafty, and you don't want to do it. As someone that's been there before, and from time to time still find myself, I wanted to say that I know what that's like. On the one hand, we have these really sweet moments of victory over our struggle with sin and unbelief. Although I admit sometimes it's hard to see, especially when we experience this wave of defeat that crashes over us and this 
painfully slow process of sanctification. What is this place? We're on the other side of what McLeod describes as this fault line running through human history. Before Calvary, Satan reigned. After Calvary, he rages but no longer reigns. Which is awesome, and I don't want to take away from that or de-emphasize that in the least, but a raging dragon is still dangerous. Or as it says in 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what do we do? How do we live victorious in the present tense knowing that there's a lion on the loose? I think you don't pet it, first of all. That's good advice. But I understand it doesn't always start like that. Usually it's a little baby lion, cute little baby lion that you bring home and feed and pet until it becomes so big and scary that you're afraid to ask it to leave. All the same, I think it helps to know our enemy. To reference 1 Peter 5 again, we are to be sober-minded and watchful. Not paranoid, mind you, just aware and sober-minded in the sense that we don't forget that we are faced with a daily fight to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so even more important than knowing your adversary is knowing your advocate, your Lord Jesus Christ, who fights for you, who will never leave you or forsake you, the one that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons can separate you from. He is on your side. And so the call again, as you've heard time and time in this church, no doubt, and certainly throughout our Hebrew series, is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Words that we'll sing momentarily. He is the founder and the finisher of our faith. And fixing our eyes on him practically, practically looks like throwing off every weight and sin that clings so closely. Making our paths straight so that we can walk unencumbered and uninhibited towards the finish line. Not boxing as one punching the air, as Paul says, but fighting the good fight of faith. Knowing that victory is ours. Which brings me to the communal aspect of this, I wanted to say this doesn't happen in isolation. Something that God graciously reminds me of over and over. Something that he just reminded me of again. I'm referring to the most recent unpleasantness. Might be a little abstract and hard to see, but that's a, a bucket of bats. It's a <laughs> combination of words I never thought would leave my lips a month ago. Uh, never had an opportunity to say it. Bucket of fried chicken, said that. Barrel of monkeys, it's a barrel, but still uh, an animal in some sort of enclosure. But never a bucket of bats. This is the first time I've seen it. So this is what I've been dealing with for the past month. Some of you guys have already heard bits and pieces of this story. And if you have, I apologize. But it's too timely and strange not to use as a sermon illustration. <laughs> After this, I'll retire for a while. But every now and again, I think there are things that happen that are so unusual and so outside your routine that it causes you to re-examine your world. This was one of those things. So I'll set the stage here and bear with me because the story's worth it. It was the evening of June 26, around 10 p.m. I was sitting on the love seat in the living room. My wife was sitting on the couch. I'd been reading through several commentaries in preparation for this very sermon. So we were discussing victory in Christ, of all things. And some of the events of the, uh, the day had addled us already. A friend who believed in a lie seemed to have given up the fight. It was our topic of conversation. And so we were asking the question, what does victory look like in this instance when lo and behold, something else I've never said, out of the corner of my eye, I see something flying down the stairwell. I think it's a moth because there's some pretty large moths here in the state of Georgia. Again, I have no context for bats in my house, so I lean towards a rational explanation at this point. 
I go to the stairwell to explore, and lo and behold, that's the second time. So, how many often do you have to say lo and behold? It's rare that you get to say it. It's, um, I mean, what's well, a, if you're kind of slow to pick up, it was a bat. And so I, I say that. I declare it. I say, oh man, it's a bat. Only I, I don't say man. And, uh, and I don't just say bat. I use a bunch of qualifiers in front of it to describe this particular kind of bat, me being terrified and unable to control my mouth at the time. Meanwhile, Marilyn curls up into a ball and hides under a blanket on the couch, like it's an invisibility cloak or something. And she says the thing she says when she wants a situation to be different. She always says this. She says, this is not okay. And turns out she was right. It wasn't. I looked it up later and bats don't belong in your house. So I'm trying to think at this moment. I'm thinking on my feet. I grab the broom, which is my weapon of choice. I killed a rat in my house with a broom like the one I'm holding. Actually, last time I preached, I shared that. It seems like every time I preach, I have to kill something. <laughs> it's actually in the bylaws now. <laughs> I hate to think of what I have to kill next. <laughs> so I have my broom, and I think, I'm going to open the door and just try to shoo it out. Because I don't really want to clean up after its death. I'm a little squeamish when it comes to this sort of thing. But as I go to open the door, I soon realize that this is not a lone assassin. But there's an army of darkness that has infiltrated our home. I see on one of the curtains another one on my shoe, the very shoes I'm wearing here. That's three if you guys are keeping track. And I say again, oh man, there's more. Only I don't say man. And Marilyn says, what do they want? And I don't ask because I don't want to know. That's the law when it comes to bats. You don't ask and they don't tell you. So thinking quickly, in a sudden burst of inspiration, is my proudest moment, I reach for a lemon in the kitchen, and I throw it at the one on the curtain. Bats hate lemons. I hit it, but it doesn't move, which my whole plan is now no longer, uh, no longer working. So at this point, we formulate another plan, and we decide to trap them under several pots, at which point we'll run upstairs, grab the boys and some supplies from our room, and flee to Jason and Janelle's house, who have been made aware of our situation. Probably shouldn't use their first name. We'll just call them the Piffles. <laughs> After a series of awkward and less than manly maneuvers, I managed to trap all three bats. And now we have to rescue the boys. But what if I think there are more bats upstairs? This is a real concern because we're running out of pots. <laughs> Somehow we managed to get the nerve and go upstairs. How do I describe this? It's like... If you guys have ever seen the movie uh, The Birds by Al Alfred Hitchcock, and there's the last part in the movie where Tippi Hedren is getting into a car with Rod Taylor, and all around them, perched uh, ominously, is this town totally overtaken by birds. Uh, that's what it was like in my house. Uh, there was bats on the ceiling, on the floor, and uh, there was one hopping around in our room. So I say, forget the supplies, only I don't say forget. I close the door, and we quietly creep down the hall towards where my boys are, and we have to wake them up without frightening them, and we have to put clothes on them because they like to sleep in their underwear for some reason. We now run drills in case there are bats. They have to get their clothes on as quickly as possible. And we get them into the car, and we drive to the Piffles' house, laughing the whole way because we think this is a one-off, and, and we'll call the exterminator tomorrow, and surely this will be taken care of, and what a great story. But over the next few days, the whole thing becomes increasingly less funny. The exterminator comes and removes the bats, but he can't find out where they're coming from and doesn't know why they're coming in. 
know about you guys, but when it comes to certain things, you kind of want to be the norm. Um, like when you go see a doctor and he says, I've never seen that before. It's not something you want to hear. Same thing with an exterminator. You want him to know what's going on. And this guy didn't. And furthermore, he tells me that they can't start the exclusion process to get rid of them until August 15th because they're federally protected by the law at that time. And so I, I call another exterminator to confirm this. And despite several attempts to bribe him, he tells me he can't do anything. Still, the guy that, the first guy that came and removed the bats tells me that they shouldn't be able to get back in at this point. And the next night, I go to gather some clothes and things, and there's more bats in my house. And every time I walk into the house, it's like a, a horror movie cliche come to life. Everything looks like a bat to me now, like that Tootsie Roll song, but bats, <laughs> just way worse. I go to retrieve a laundry basket full of clothes, and I'm looking, and I'm not sure if it's a black sock or a bat. And so again, I grab my weapon of choice, the broom, and I poke it, and it hisses at me. Like, like really? And when socks start hissing at you, you feel less than well. All this started taking a toll on me psychologically in a way that was really strange. The experts were of no help. It, was, it seemed like I was going to be displaced from my home for two months. We'd already been with the Piffles for two weeks. My boys had lost most of the pieces from their board games, which Janelle meticulously organizes. Pretty soon all their games would be like our games in our house, which we have these substitute tokens. Instead of the dog and Monopoly, we have a Thor action figure, <laughs> which just shows how much she loves us, allowing us to be there. The federal government didn't have our back. For all I knew, they were passing new laws saying that the bats were now entitled to our house and we had to pay them rent. <laughs> so this is where I was at, literally. I just, this thing, <laughs> playing over and over again. Sorry, I just wanted to, not that. Just one more time. Is that working? Couple, what, that's it. All right. Back to Angela Lansbury. That's, that's seriously what I was feeling. I was going insane. I actually can't concentrate with this either. We go, we'll go to a blank slide. I was like, I was like Jack Nicholson in, in The Shining. At one point, I had this thought, and I said these words out loud to my wife. I said, I'm going to camp out at the house with an axe, and I'm going to chop my wall down, and then I'm going to set the house on fire. That all seemed entirely plausible to me. And that sounds funny when I say it out loud, uh, but that's actually not a joke. You guys are thinking, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and it wasn't until Jason volunteered to go over there with me to overturn the entire house from top to bottom. And, uh, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why this is. Uh, it never seems to fail. Something about him entering into that with me, I felt this weight lifted from my mind. This, this dark, sinister cloud, just gone. The same thing happened when I was in 12-step meetings and support groups, and I would call someone and confess what I was going through, and it, it always helped. And strangely, it hasn't become my default. Think about bearing one another's burdens. Together with Jason, we found out where the bats were coming from, through the wall in the master bedroom. He helped tear open the wall and reseal it where the board had been rotted away there so that nothing else can get in. And we went ahead and did the exclusion process together. He climbed up on a tall ladder, even though he's afraid of heights. That saved us a lot of money as well. And then Brooks and Janelle came over and helped Marilyn completely disinfect the entire house while Megan watched our boys. Janelle even helped clean the boys' bathroom, which between the bats, kind of a toss-up. They're both a mess. <laughs> 
Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Ecclesiastes 4.10. I'll say it again. We don't fight the battle in isolation. For me, that always results in defeat and discouragement and loneliness. And if you're not engaged in community here on some level, and I didn't plan this to coincide with Jamie's pitch for you guys to sign up community groups, but if you're not involved in community where people know what's going on with you, then you should be. I sat across from Ray Ortland, one of my favorite pastors, and uh, if you've ever listened to Ray Ortland before, he's wonderfully tender. He's an old silver-haired man that loves Jesus and loves people. And so every now and again, he'll say something uh, because he, he's so soothing, like uh, it, it cuts you to the quick. And so I, I went to this Acts 29 conference and um, sat across from him, and he's talking, and everyone feels like they're held like little babies. And, uh, and then someone asked him the question because they're big on community, in particular a one-on-one discipleship in his church. And they asked him the question, what do you do about someone that resists community? And he says, uh, without skipping a beat, he says, pray for them and, and wait for their lives to fall apart. It sounded like, I was like, whoa. But, uh, but that's been the case for me. I won't apologize for it, and he didn't either. Lastly, I wanted to briefly look at the missional implication of this facet of the cross. Knowing who our enemy is great because it means we know who our enemy is not. It is not each other. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As Christians, knowing who our real enemy is frees us from fruitless quarrels and petty disputes with those who don't believe what we believe, those who would be diametrically opposed to us, even hostile, those entrenched in sin or those championing sin, those not even aware that there is a battle. These are the people who Christ died for, people who are slaves to sin and death just like we were. Our hearts should break for them. And we should be compelled to share the good news of a sin-conquering, death-conquering hero who frees us from futile pursuits of building our own kingdom here, fear that drives a person to madness. That being said, if you're not a Christian and you are living in the darkness of sin and the fear of death, you can know Jesus as your sin-conquering, death-conquering hero, walking in the peace and freedom of the victory he secured for you on the cross.